This is Beekeeper Confidential, a show about the curious lives of bees and their beekeepers. I'm your host, Mandy Shaw. Today, we're talking about another kind of bee and a different kind of beekeeping. I'm joined today by Sarah Carmody, an anthropologist who first fell in love with Apis mellifera while spending time with her brother David in his hives. She decided to study Cambodian apiculture. She traveled to Cambodia and is joining us today to share her adventures of honey hunting. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm joining you from my garden this morning. It's so nice out. I thought I just wanted to be outside. It's been 100 degrees the last two days, and this morning it's finally cool. So, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, it's the same in California. We've had 100-degree weather for the last week or so. Oh. It's been amazing and so hot. Your garden looks beautiful, by oh, the way. thank you. It's... um. It's <laughs> the trumpet oh, wow. vines just started blooming like this last week. And so it's going crazy. And I love the trumpet vine because the honeybees love it, but also all sorts of different wasps come to the flowers and eat ants because, of course, it attracts ants. And I don't know. It's just a cool plant. It's kind of a beast, though. There's three of them. And I, I I think in a couple years, they're going to start creeping in the house and trying to strangle us at night or something. <laughs> I mean, that happens, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, looks gorgeous. Thank you. Well, <laughs> thank you for joining me today. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's I'm really excited to be a part of your podcast oh, and to share um, about what I found out about the honeybees and Southeast Asia. Yeah. So. And your your brother actually reached out to me on Instagram and he's like, my sister did all of this work studying yeah. Apis dorsata and she had all these gigs lined up and then COVID hit and she needs to t share her story. You, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's been driving me crazy. It, it was insane. Um, right when COVID hit, I was, I just graduated from Chico State with my undergrad in anthropology and right when COVID hit we had just gone on spring break and right after spring break I had all these speaking engagements I was supposed to do all these things and then it just kind of you know fizzled out but that's okay that's just you know how life works so wow. now we have this amazing beautiful opportunity well first of all you know my name's Sarah Carmody and I'm an undergraduate at CSU Chico. I just graduated class of 2020. Congratulations. Wow. It's been an amazing journey. It, it seems kind of weird that an anthropologist would be so interested in the lives of bees. You know, as a student in anthropology, you know, anthropology is a study of human beings. And so the way that I got interested in the bees was actually through my brother, David, who contacted you. And David's had hives for the last 10 years. And I've been around the bees. I love seeing the bees. 
it's just amazing. It's such a joy and a privilege to watch a harvest, you know, just to hear the sounds of the bees, to smell their smell and to just watch their flight path was just always something that I held dear to my heart that really I didn't know how lucky I was to have grown up, you know, seeing my brother as a beekeeper. And as a student in anthropology, they always tell you, you know, you need to find your your niche. What are you going to study for the rest of your life? Mm-hmm. And so one day it just popped in my head, bees. Like, I know a lot about bees. There's other people around the world who work with bees. What are they doing? And so I started off with that question. I ended up writing a grant um, through CSU Chico, and I ended up getting it. And before um, I had written and submitted that grant, I was looking for people across the world who were working with bees. And so every time I was, you know, going through Google trying to find someone, this guy, Danny Jump, would come up every single time, Danny Jump and Siem Reap, Cambodia. And so I got really curious and I started watching his YouTube channel. And the thing that really stood out with me about Danny was Danny was talking about how he wanted to push for sustainable harvest, which was something that was kind of few and far between when I was doing my research. And so Danny Jump's name kept coming up. And so I contacted him in probably around like March, 2019, I contacted him and I said, Hey, would you be willing to do this tour with me? Um, so I can see what you do. And he said, yes. And so I ended up getting the grant. And by the way, this was my very, very first time ever leaving the United States. Oh, wow. (laughs) You know, it was, it was a crazy thing when I first started talking to my family about it. Um, because Right before I got the grant, I had decided to study abroad in Thailand. So in summer of 2019, I went to Thailand for a month, the study abroad group. And directly after my month in Thailand, um, July 4th, uh, 2019, I set foot in Cambodia for the very first time by myself. Now, when I take guts. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's everyone's reaction. You know, it it was an amazing thing. And, you know, possibly definitely a scary thing at first, considering, you know, being a single female traveler and never having been outside the United States, you know, Mm -hmm. we hear all these things, you know, we're kind of conditioned to believe, you know, you know, going outside of the United States is really scary. It's this whole, you know, uncertain thing. But in reality, it was the best decision I could have ever made. It was oh. amazing. Now, as soon as I stepped foot in Cambodia, um, the very next day I was on tour with Danny. Now, Danny is just the most amazing, sweet, down to earth man I have ever met. He is a vegetarian. He has lived in Cambodia for the last 26 years. So that's actually older than well, almost older than I am. I'm 27. I'm like, he's lived there my entire <laughs> life. Um, and part of the thing that Danny does is he works with a community of beekeepers in Siem Reap. Now, Siem Reap, um, if you've ever heard of Angkor Wat, the Buddhist temple, um, it's the largest temple complex in the world. I, I know a lot of viewers 
probably know who Angelina Jolie is. And if you remember Tomb Raider, um, in that movie, they show the temples, right? Those are real temples. That's top prom. Yeah. And so I actually got to go um, to those temples and see the area. And I will say, um, if there's anything that you can do in your life, you should go to Cambodia. You should see the temples. Like, I'm really speaking from the heart. It is the most amazing thing you can ever see in your life. It's gorgeous. Aside from that tangent, though, um, (laughs) Demi is just a fantastic man. Um, When I was watching his YouTube videos, it was so funny. He has this white beard that just goes all the way down to his chest, just this gorgeous full beard. And Danny's such a good... um, person when it comes to talking about the beast he's so knowledgeable he knows what's going on and this rafter um, community that he works with now uh, rafter is the method that they use for housing the bees so like here in America we use the Langstroth hives right well over in Cambodia um, in the community that Danny is working with they have these rafter hives which is more or less um, it's a stick Um, with like a Y end, and then there's another stick that goes in between the Y, and it's at like a 30 degree angle, and then the bees actually create their hive underneath it, and they build the hive pretty close to the ground. These rafters are only about maybe four feet off the ground, and what each family does is they have multiple rafter claims throughout um, the area that they're living in, are they, so, are they enclosed at all or they just are out yeah, there out in the open? Out in the open. So the very first time that I went out to go see these rafter hives, Danny looks at me and he says, are you okay with leeches? And, you know, you are, hear that question. <laughs> Is there right? ever a time where we should be okay with leeches? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> well, and he asked me, you know, are you okay with leeches? Is it, a, are you okay if you get wet up to your waist? Wow. And so here I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not really sure, you know, where we're going. I, I know the climate of Cambodia, it's pretty tropical. There's a lot of, you know, tropical trees. Well, this location um, was out in like a very swampy area. And the thing about Cambodia is, and most people don't know this history, but in Cambodia, um, there was the Khmer Rouge genocide. And as a result of that um, war that happened, um, the Khmer Rouge were the communist party of Cambodia and they were led by Pol Pot and about 2.2 million Cambodians were murdered. Um, during the period of 1975 to 1979. So as a result, there are landmines that are spread throughout Cambodia to this day. And things that we had to kind of be aware of was, you know, we're fairly certain that this area is cleared. However, you need to stay on the path. So... There are unexploded ordinances that can get washed down the river and you don't know. So that was one of the things that we had to keep in the back of our minds as we're going out 
to interact with these um, rafter claims. And again, that was one of the things that my professor said going from CSU Chico. They're telling me, stay on the path, stay on the path. What do you do? You stay on the path. Wow. Oh my God. I know. But um, we were fine, of course. But the first time that we went out, I was there, like I said, in July. Now, July should be part of the rainy season in Cambodia. There's two seasons. You have the wet season and you have the dry season. Well, it should have been the wet season when I was there last year, but there has been a horrific drought. And this drought is really affecting the climate. It's affecting the amount of plants that the bees have to pollinate. And then the other thing with Cambodia too is there's quite a bit of habitat loss because we're switching from, you know, vast swaths of jungle and they're moving towards agricultural development. So there's quite a bit of habitat loss for these bees. Now, the bees that I was going to see are Apis dorsata. Now, compared to Apis mellifera, our you know, favorite honeybee at home, Apis dorsata can measure up to three centimeters. That's about an inch and a half. So Whoa. <laughs> they're huge. So like the way that I was explaining it to some friends was like, imagine just an entire colony of like queen sized bees. That's how big they are. So going back to this first trip, you know, we get out to the village. I meet with Peng, who's the head man of the village. And we ask if we can go see his claim. And so we start walking just straight out from his house into the jungle right across, you know, the road. We're walking, I don't know, it probably took about 30, 30 minutes to find the first claim. Well, when I got there the very first time, it was empty. And so for the whole month, I made repeated trips to go try to find the bees on his claims. And they were empty every single time that I went out with Danny. However, it was really amazing. I got to meet with everyone who was involved um, and got to talk with them and interview. Now, it wasn't until my second trip to Cambodia, which happened actually Earlier this year, I was there in January of 2020, and it just so happened that, you know, I've put in an entire year of research and effort trying to find these bees. My brother just happens to come for a week to visit me, and we find bees. So, Oh, that's so cool. You two were there together to make that discovery. Oh, and it was, oh my gosh, Mandy, it was amazing it it makes my heart beat fast just thinking about it um we actually were so privileged to go and see this hive and we were also able to witness a sustainable harvest which was just phenomenal so the way that they harvest um peng actually builds a handheld smoker so what he was doing when we approached the hive was he um found dry sticks that he made as the core of the smoker and then he found wet leaves and what he did was he took the bundle of dried sticks he laid them in the middle and he began to roll it up and then what he ended up doing was he took twine and he wrapped it around the bundle and then he actually created like a little handle 
And then he lit the inside. And once it was really smoking, you know, we went to go see the bees. And mind you, like a sort of a smudge stick with a with a handle. Yeah, kind of. Uh-huh. That, but a lot bigger, a lot bigger, almost two feet long, right? And once Peng got this smoker going, he was with his son and they were getting it ready. And Danny and I and my brother were very quiet because they want you to be very quiet when you're near the bees. They don't want you to disturb them. But keep in mind, none of us have a veil. None of us are wearing any type of protective gear. We're just wearing the clothes on our backs. And once Pang got the smoker going, he brings it up to the hive. And Mandy, it was the biggest hive I have ever seen in my life. This Apis dorsata hive was six feet long. I am not exaggerating. It was six feet long. Wow. Was it, and, I'm trying to imagine the the structure of the, the nest. Was it? one large sheet of comb yeah um wait if you don't mind i can share my screen and show you the picture yeah so here is peng that big for you Hmm. so here's peng with his smoker oh wow so that really is big yes it's it's very large um let's see and so there's his son in the background. So they actually made two smokers um, while we were out there. And as you can see in the background, we're in thick foliage. Oh, and this sure is the area. Um, wow. So, was, so this is kind of the first glimpse through the foliage of the hive. There's Pang. <gasps> oh, my goodness. It's so, it's so difficult because <sighs> they're... Uh, they're really tucked in there in the foliage. Um, you know, there's a part when we're going to see this hive, we're having to get down on our hands and knees and go underneath um, <laughs> a lot of trees to get to this hive to see them. Oh my God. And this picture that you see with Peng, I don't know if you can tell, but you can actually see the queen cells. Right oh, yeah. But, yeah, they're just starting to. So this is a really healthy hive. Um, but it was just a little difficult considering all the foliage, trying to get that really good. Yeah. Photo. So those cappings, is that honey or is that brood? That is brood. Whoa. Wow. Exactly. That is, is a tight brood pattern. <laughs> it is gorgeous. And uh, so there you can see there's a oh my God. video. <laughs> You were you able to catch that? <laughs> yes, that I was just thinking, this is so cool. <laughs> it was amazing. And I mean, as as close as you can see that video, we were, I mean, my face was inches within that hive. And these bees are so docile. Apis dorsata, they're so gentle. And I think there's this misconception when you talk to people and you tell them, you know, I went to go see giant honeybees. People have this tendency to kind of freak out. Uh-huh. You know, they think that you know bees are dangerous. People are always afraid of um, getting stung. At least in my experience, when I talk to people, yeah. But there's really nothing to fear so long as you're gentle with these bees. You smoke them; they're going to be fine with you. Um, so here in this picture um, that I'm showing you, it's a, it's a little bit better of a picture, but it's hard to like really conceptualize the size of it but 
as you can see, um, here's the, you know, clean cells right here. Here's the brood. And then over here on the left, that's the honey head. So that is the major um, portion of the hive where all the honey is kept. And the thing that everyone was the most excited about was the fact that the honey was capped. So we knew that it was good honey because the thing that they were telling me is that they were afraid that it would be what they call green honey. It's not um, ready. They call that green honey. Oh. And so um, they decided to harvest. Now, the way that um, rafter harvesting is sustainable is that they only cut a certain portion of the honey head and then they leave a portion for the bees so they can continue of course, to use their honey as their resource to survive. Mm -hmm. Now, the practice in Cambodia up until rafter harvesting was that they would cut the entire hive, right? They would take all the honey, they would take all the brood. Now, the thing about harvesting in Cambodia is that the brood is actually a delicacy for people to eat. It's called nyom ang, and everyone wants to eat it. Of course, it's highly nutritious. It's an excellent source of protein. And when you go into the market, you will see brood everywhere. And that's one of the things that most people are concerned about with the declining numbers of Apis dorsata is that the rate of brood consumption is so high. And from a Western perspective, at least for me, when I first heard of that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's, you know, it sounds terrible, but you have to have a lens of cultural relativism. This is a traditional food. This is a delicacy. Pregnant women eat this. And I have no right to make any judgment on how people use their resources. Mm -hmm. Now, the amazing thing, though, is that Danny, who is an outsider, but is very much welcomed and has lived with this community for years, he's offered an alternative way that promotes the bees to return every season. Um, with Apis dorsata, unlike our bees, mellifera, like we're able to keep mellifera in hives year round, right? Apis dorsata migrates with the season they're always trying to oh. kind of avoid rainy season. so you have a hive that will come and set down it'll build this hive very very quickly within a short time period they told me anywhere between a week to two weeks and they'll have a hive this size whoa right um so they're really quick to come in they start to pollinate um as much as they can and once they build that hive, they'll stay for a while. But then once the rainy season starts to come, they're going to migrate to another country in Southeast Asia. So you'll see Apis dorsata in Cambodia. You'll see them in Vietnam. You'll see them in Thailand. Um, you'll see them in Laos. And really, they just migrate as much as they can to avoid that rainy season. Do they have yeah. a similar lifespan as Apis mellifera? I believe so. Um, I'm not 100% sure on that. <laughs> I'm just um, thinking about like the the rate at which they have to regenerate their population and the effort that it would take to be 
sort of nomadic. So coming at it from an anthropologist standpoint, I don't know all the answers with entomology. I was <laughs> That's okay. And the community. Yeah. So but these are but these are great questions. These are things that I I need to learn and the more I start to do this deep dive into how people interact with bees, it's just it's amazing. Um this beautiful relationship that humans and bees have had since, you know, the beginning of our formation of our groups and societies. We've always been invested um, in honeybees. Mm-hmm. And especially in Cambodia, um, it's amazing uh, just to see this relationship with bees. You'll see bees present in, you know, all different walks of life. You'll see, you know, bees printed on clothing everywhere. You see um, so many different products. And one of the important products for Cambodia is um, candles because Cambodia is predominantly a Buddhist country. And this is actually what I have right here in my hand. This is actually a candle made from beeswax. Wow. Um, oh, it's so Cambodia. slender. Yeah. <laughs> and it, these are just absolutely amazing. But this is the beeswax from Apis dorsata. And in the Buddhist uh, religion, candles are very important in practicing faith. So a lot of times what ends up happening is these um, honey harvesters are actually, they will um, harvest for beeswax along with honey, and they render the beeswax into these candles, and then they go and they sell them to the pagodas around the area. And the pagodas are another name for the temple complex that houses the monks. And this is just a great way for community members to make um, you know, money for themselves and their families and the community. And as you'll go through the market in Cambodia, you'll see the candles, you will see the brood, you'll see honey. And how do they have the brood packaged? Um, so they'll wrap it in a banana leaf and it'll just be open air. It's an open air market. Most things are open air. Um, as you're walking through and you know it's real honey when you see the bees all over the honeycomb <laughs> trying to take it out. Um, but there is a problem over there with um, fake honey um, uh-huh. because honey is so valuable. In Cambodia, like let's say like a liter of honey can go for $10. So $10 USD. Here in America, we say $10. That doesn't sound like very much. That is a huge profit for a family in Cambodia. That could be a few weeks worth of work to almost an entire month's worth of work for a liter of honey. Ten dollars. Ten dollars, yep. And so because of that, because the honey is valued so high and the brood is valued so high, there is this huge um, incentive for people to go out to harvest as much as they can to bring it to market and sell it because people need to support their families. So the brood, again, you know, it sells for so much. So honey for a liter is $10. Brood can be double that. It could be anywhere from $15 to $20. Um, It really depends on what market you go to. The prices seem to fluctuate. I'm still trying to get a handle for, you know, which communities are selling at which price, Mm -hmm. but that'll come in time. But it's really interesting. Um, 
when I participated in the harvest, they were really only interested in um, the honey and a little bit of the brood. But I was really surprised they cut a good swath of pollen and no one in Cambodia really likes the pollen. You know, here in America, we find pollen for sale at Walmart and people are so excited and it's so nutritious. But I was so shocked when um, Peng, he cut the honey head and then he cut some of the pollen and he handed me the pollen and he was like, here you go. He didn't want it. (laughs) That's so strange. I I mean, it seems strange, but... it seems strange for our standards because we think, oh my gosh, every every piece of this, you know, hive just has so much value to it. But you'd be surprised what some people like and what some people don't, and they just don't really have a use for the pollen. So if yeah. if an Apis dorsata colony abandons the nest, would another like swarm of Apis dorsata move on to the comb do they reuse combs like that as far as i know from the interviews that i've done with the honey harvesters it doesn't seem like they do wow so it seems that once they once they set up their hive they you know use it and when it's time for them to go they just abscond Hmm. Did the people that you work with talk about any like parasites or pests that the Apis dorsata are are dealing with? So that was one of my first questions. And they encounter a lot of the same issues that we do with our bees. Now, we are constantly in America worried about Varroa the destructor, right? Mm -hmm. Well, this is actually the area of the world where the Varroa might originates from so these bees have actually co-evolved with varroa and while varroa can have a detrimental effect on these bees they've kind of built up an immunity to the point where they're not decimated by varroa like apolifera is so in cambodia they they still experience issues you know with foul brood um there's quite a few other um pests that do attack them i'm so sorry don't ask me to pronounce Uh, any (laughs) it's totally fine i'm just thinking like here we tend to hold on to the combs longer Mm -hmm. and we are taught to prevent swarming Um, and those are natural ways to help the bees alleviate some of the the problems so thinking about how the apis dorsata won't move on to old comb and when they move to a new space, they are always just rebuilding a new comb to live on. Um, that must aid them in in fighting off the diseases and viruses. I'm sure it does. I think also um, one of the reasons I believe why Dorsata will migrate so much is because in Cambodia, you have very high humidity, right? The very so there's a very um, distinct difference with the viscosity of the honey. Um, it's very runny, the honey. It's almost I would like an Apis dorsata honey more towards like it's the consistency of syrup because it has oh. such a high water content. Now you once you harvest the Apis dorsata honey, 
it has a very short um, shelf life actually because of that high water content. So normally once it's harvested, um, as far as I know with the people that I've interviewed, they will eat that honey very quickly once they've um, obtained it. So it's almost like a, like produce, you would buy it at the market and then you'd want to eat it right away. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Exactly. Um, I will say I myself got a small container of it and it probably lasted, I would say around three and a half weeks um, before it kind of, you could tell that it wasn't quite the same as when it was, you know, freshly harvested. Uh-huh. I see in this picture, you're holding up a ruler to the comb. Yeah. Yes. Um, in an attempt to try to give a, a better um, feel for how big the cells are. And I do have some other photos. It's another gorgeous photo. You're absolutely right about them looking like just big queen bees. Yes. Walking around on the comb. I just have so many pictures of them. And there's Peng cutting the, uh, right here, he's cutting the pollen. Wow. I think that, that last photo, or even this one too, really shows the size Oh, they're massive. This is a short clip if you don't mind me playing. Oh, please do. I just love that sound. <laughs> it was it was quite the event going out there. Oh, I miss it so much. It was amazing. Um, but there you can see in this picture the size. Wow. Of and you can see how long the cells are so how Uh, thick is that that looks like it's a couple of inches at least it is it is um that it depends on what part of the hive i believe when i measured that part was almost six inches six inches thick huge yes yeah from smokes huge they are i mean it's the giant honeybee (laughs) (laughs) it's I mean, it's hard to like wrap your mind around it. It's, you know, it, it's yeah. one thing to read about it and to study about it and then to actually be in the field and to see it firsthand. Yeah. And I, mean, I, I will say, with, oh, go ahead. With like knowing how fragile fresh comb is, I would imagine maybe part of that thickness is just to help with the stability to support such a large, fresh, full comb especially in the heat and the humidity well maybe humidity has nothing to do with it but I'm sure part of it has to do with the heat but I would I would think it's the size that it needs to be that large Uh, here's a good photo I love the the drama of these photos with the light coming from the back and then the smoke rising up around the combs it was and you know, the amazing thing that I still have trouble coming to terms with it, this entire process only lasted about 20 minutes. Oh, my from God. Start to this was a quick process. And in this picture, you can see um, just how beautiful the color is on Apis dorsata. Just how um, it tapers from, you know, a deep gold to darker gold. And then they're almost white at the tip. Um, of their abdomen, I guess, 
thorax is that the right word <laughs> um thorax <laughs> is the little segment right behind their head so oh, okay head, head thorax and abdomen See, that's i'm such a stranger when it comes to these <laughs> anthropologists i'm trained with the people yeah. <laughs> but you're right the drama of the scene i mean we're in such dense foliage as this whole process is unfolding and it's so exciting Pang and his son are just these expert honey harvesters these expert honey hunters that are just going through and here's another um quick video oh. and oh, every time i see it it just i get so excited um there's much uh, wow. closer picture. And I especially love this photo because the light is shining through the comb and it just creates this beautiful, like all these different hues of yellow that you see through the comb. It's just gorgeous. It's amazing. And Pang has been doing this with his family for years. And so the interesting thing too about the honey hunting in Cambodia is this is purely something that men do. Men are the ones who they are the honey hunters. They're the honey harvesters. And women actually go to market and the women are the ones who sell um, in the market. But they don't actually go out normally um, to harvest. Now, as I say that, times are changing, right? Um, so there are more women who are beginning to become interested in the stewardship of bees. So we see a whole um, generation of young adults who are getting more interested in protecting their bees and their community. So what, what are they doing to try to conserve and replenish the population of Apis dorsata? So conservation efforts in Cambodia are... I will say complex. There are pockets of groups like um, Danny Jump, who has an ecotourism business, who is bringing groups from all over the world to see sustainable harvest in action. And through the act of visitors going on these ecotours, that is directly helping um, to continue this trend of sustainable harvest. Now, not every pocket is like this model that Danny has created. There another site that I went out to um, out in um, the outskirts of Siem Reap. It was called Bee Treed. Um, and that was an NGO run by um, an American named Ben and his wife, Sharon, who's from Australia. And they are working with a community who is not very keen on sustainable harvest because there's um there's kind of a, a disconnect because there's people who have lived their entire lives right and they just clear cut these hives and that's what they've always done because that's what their grandfathers did that's what their great grandfathers did and that's just how they've learned how to do it and there are groups who will go and they'll harvest honey but if you're unexperienced harvesting honey you know you're gonna get stung if you don't bring a smoker if you don't know what you're doing and so what a lot of people have started doing and this completely breaks my heart is there's an unknown middleman 
who has been providing certain groups of people with these pesticides, right? And what they do is they'll take this pesticide, they'll take an arrow, they'll dip the arrowhead in this pesticide and they'll shoot the bees. Because in this area that I'm talking about, the, these Apis dorsata hives are actually very high up in the trees. They can be anywhere between 40 to 60 feet up off the ground. Oh my gosh. If you're going to harvest these kind of hives, you actually have to climb up the tree to cut this hive down. And so one of the things to avoid getting stung is they're opting to use these pesticides to kill the bees. Now, I've talked with quite a few different um, entomology professors at CSU Chico, and we've kind of hypothesized perhaps maybe what we think it could be, but I have no definitive answer on what exactly the pesticide is that they're using. And that is something that I'd like to address in future research. Yeah. Uh, that's where it can become a little, you know, dangerous because you're not sure where people are obtaining these pesticides from. And um, do you know, know if there's any level of contamination or re residuals in the honey and the brood that they're harvesting? Yes. Ooh. So from the interviews that I conducted, um, it seems that it made it has made its way into the water and it has killed fish and it has sickened people. Oh no. Honey um is probably contaminated too when they harvest with this method. However, you have to you have to really try to put yourself in their shoes. You're hungry, you're trying to feed your family. You know that this sells in the market for an incredible amount of money. And to ensure your family, you're going to do what you can. And for some people, the easiest, quickest way is to poison these hives so you can bring it to market and sell. And so that's one of the things that the folks at Bee Treat, Ben and Sharon, they're actively working with the community. They're buying um, honey from the community at a higher price with the condition that the people have um, sustainably harvested it. So they conduct workshops. They do a lot of community outreach. They have different people who work with them that, that are actively working to create a more sustainable method of harvesting. But you can't track everyone at this point um, because these hives go up so quickly, they can abscond so quickly, you know, once someone finds these bees, um, it is a it's a matter of um, opportunity. If you have the opportunity to take these bees, you're going to take it. Um, because the mindset is, if I don't take it now, someone else is just going to take it later. So I'd rather get it now than wait. And that's, of course, has a residual, I mean, it has roots with the Khmer Rouge conflict. Um, Cambodia is a beautiful, amazing country. It's growing and it has a vibrant young population that's starting to, you know, create its own sense of identity. But at the same time, you have, you know, there are still areas in Cambodia where life is, is very difficult and you do what you need to do to survive. And this is just one of the aspects that 
um, happens. And unfortunately, the bees are the subject of, you know, this environmental, um, you know, in our in our Western terms, we would probably, you know, environmental destruction is what comes to mind when we talk about it. But, mm-hmm. you know, you have to keep that lens that over there, it's just this is everyday life. This is, you know, I need to harvest this so I can take care of my family. And there are, um, of course, you know, sustainable ways to do that. And it's starting to um, catch on and it is starting to, um, you know, make its way into education um, throughout different schools in Cambodia. Wow. Wow. Um, Well, this has been super fascinating. Um, (laughs) Is there anything else that you wanted to be sure that we included for today? Um, let's see. Well, I want everyone to know about Danny Jump and the amazing work that Danny Jump is doing. Um, if everything with COVID settles down, I will say Cambodia is one of the best places for Americans to travel to. Anyone really should travel to Cambodia. Siem Reap is absolutely gorgeous. Family-friendly, I can't get enough of going to Cambodia. Everyone should visit. And if you get the chance, go see Danny Jump and Bees Unlimited or stop by Bee Tree um, with Ben and Sharon. And, um, you know, continue to learn about bees. And yeah. Now, you had mentioned that Danny has a YouTube channel. Everybody can start following him and watching yeah. his videos. And Danny, um, Danny Jump is on Facebook too. So anyone can add Danny Jump and, you know, add to his followers list because he does do more than, um, you know, just follow the bees. He follows the everyday lives of Cambodians. And mm-hmm. he has tons of videos about what everyday life looks like. For him. This uh, has been such a refreshing conversation and so interesting and unlike any other episode that I've had before. And I'm so excited to meet you and so impressed and amazed. And I just think you're wonderful. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much. (laughs) As I continue on, I'm looking to apply for grad school and I'm trying to continue this work with bees. So if anybody has any suggestions for me, I would love to hear them. I'm always wanting to connect with beekeepers and hear what people are doing and how people interact with the bees that we all love so much. Oh, thank you for being here, Sarah. To follow Sarah's adventures, head over to beekeeperconfidential.com where she's given us a video that includes photos and videos from the interview today and also a link to her social media account. You can also find Danny's YouTube channel, by searching Bees Unlimited. I hope you and your bees are safe and healthy. Until next time, may the buzz be with you. Beekeeper Confidential is a Waggle Works production and it's written and produced by Mandy Shaw. I mean, I, I always think about, um, you know, remember the National Geographic on the cover they had... The, you know, harvesting honey. And that was that Apis dorsata? I'm not sure. But it was the, it was large combs like this. But I, I almost want to say maybe they were harvesting hallucinogenic honey. Oh, yeah, that would be Apis dorsata. But okay. that, uh, that is actually from Nepal. Nepal. And yes. yes. There is, 
that that is that could be a, its own episode on its own. I I could talk to you about that for quite a while. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but uh, though that that's actually so funny that you mentioned that because that's the next area of the world that I would really like to go to would be to go to Nepal and to meet with. Um, they actually call it Mad Honey. Yeah. And you you can see it as a product. They they sell this everywhere, but it is a hallucinogenic honey, and um. It is actually known for stopping historically many, um, like the Persian army tried to go and invade Southeast Asia and they came upon mad honey and they ate it and it actually stopped an entire army because they were all hallucinating so badly they couldn't do anything. 